In this episode, we're talking about true crime drama, about ITV's seven-part series, The Long Shadow, about Peter Sutcliffe, who was otherwise known as the Yorkshire Ripper. Coming up, we're with the series writer and creator, George Kay. Sutcliffe did absolutely horrific things, as we all know, but he only did that for a vast minority of his life. For the rest of the time, he was a lorry driver with a normal voice in a normal workplace who acted completely normally. And it's that sort of averageness that Mark captures. And because of that, it's, it's sort of chilling to see because he's not a monster at all. He's just like the man next door. And I think that's the most frightening thing of all. It's really important to me to show that people like George Oldfield, for all the mistakes that he made, was trying to, he was trying his best to catch Peter Sutcliffe. And some of the decisions he made uh, were wrong, but were done for logical reasons. Suddenly, I was writing Reclaim the Night protests from 1980. At the same time as on the news, there were Reclaim the Night protests going on in London. And suddenly the parallels were sort of overwhelming, really. A quick one. If you enjoy Behind the Crimes, please share it. And it would mean a lot if you could rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want the really good stuff, subscribe for extra content at robertsmurphy.substack.com. That's robertsmurphy.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. The first of a new type of episode here, where we look at the wider world of true crime and how it appears on screen. you describe him for me? A white man, dark hair. He had these dark coloured eyes. The voice you're about to hear is the man we believe to be the so-called Yorkshire Ripper. Between July 1975 and November 1980, a man given the appalling nickname the Yorkshire Ripper murdered 13 women in, in the north of England. Nine other women that we know of were also attacked but survived. In the ITV drama The Long Shadow, the focus isn't on the killer, rather it's on Peter Sutcliffe's victims, who they were, the backdrops of their lives, the legacy of their attacks, and the loved ones they left behind. They don't know who Ripper is. They don't know what Ripper looks like. To please help us find the person who killed my daughter. This is only going to get bigger. I give you my word that I will catch this animal. The drama is daring in its ambition, sensitive in its approach, and completely absorbing. And I'm delighted to say the man who spent four years bringing this piece of work to the screen, the series writer, George Kay, is with me. Uh, George, thanks so much for being with us tonight. How are you? Very well. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, just away from the long shadow at the moment, is just at the moment, just over the last few months, you're I've got a series of releases. You've just had a, a a monster hit with Idris Elba and Hijack, which was Apple TV's biggest show, I think, in history. You've got series three of Lupin, which is your creation, and a big juggernaut on Netflix. And then, then you've got The Long Shadow. It looks from the outside that you're just having the most uh, incredible success. How does it feel like to be in that at the moment? Um Oh, it's very exciting and it's very great to be able to make shows on those platforms, to have those platforms support the vision of what you're trying to do. Um, 
And it's great to be able to do a real range of projects because, I mean, for example, I was writing Hijack at the same time as I was writing The Don Shadow, and they're completely different, um, obviously. And provided that I sort of put a lunch break between the two sessions, um, I got renewed energy by switching around. So if I was a little bit running dry on one or, or feeling fatigued, I could switch to a completely different show and it would keep me fresh. And um, and the same with Lupin, really. It's, it's very different from... Um, the sort of, I think felt like the central responsibility the whole time was the long shadow because that involved real people as a true story uh, and a real duty of care and responsibility that came with writing that programme. So... You know, if I wasn't feeling um, I had the energy for it at any certain point, I'd go and um, and have fun on one of, on some of those more kind of genre pieces that you, we've mentioned and um, come back fresh to The Little Shadow because um, it was so important to get it right and it felt like such a big responsibility. What made you decide to bring this to the screen? I had um, wanted to work with new pictures, new Willow Grills and, and Matt Sanford, um, uh, for a long time they're a great company um and they had done des and white house farm uh, for itv in a, a brilliant way um uh, and i was i've always been interested in in, in crime and, and how it affects our society um but i was really ambitious and i wanted to try and do something on a bigger level so you know you, you often get three or four part crime dramas on itv and i really wanted to pitch something bigger that could be a societal piece so this to, to Willow and I said that the, the, the story or the case that would um, most illuminate those things uh, might be uh, Peter Sutcliffe's crimes. So we very quickly started to develop a, a treatment for that and went to uh, Polly Hill at ITV, had a drama there. And um, I think because she trusts Willow so much, uh, she was very supportive of it. And I was very ambitious to make it big and um, a big ensemble societal story came about really quickly it then began four years of research to do it properly so quick start then the hard work begins i'm going to ask you about some of the scenes in the casting and the show in a moment there are some people out there who know kind of everything there is to know about peter sutcliffe they've read every book they've watched every documentary and uh, had you come from that sort of backdrop or were you sort of fairly fresh to it? Because I guess you were incredibly young, if even around, when the events happened. Well, I was born in 78, so right in the middle of all of that, and obviously completely unaware uh, at that age of, of anything like that. Um, but even when I was growing up, I was aware of Peter Sutcliffe. He's always been in the tabloid press, and he's always been um, in his... You know, he's always been good tabloid fodder for those red tops who want to print a story about Sutcliffe would always seem to sort of sell very well in a kind of beastly way. Um, uh, so always very aware. And I grew up in Crowthorne, which is where Broadmoor is. And he was um, uh, he was the resident of Broadmoor for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I was aware. Um, but then and I and I'm interested in uh, crime. Um I mean, you, that's how you and I know each other is because of a shared interest in those those stories. Um, but um, and like lots of people, I'd, I'd read Michael Bilton's book, which is now probably about twenty years old since it was first published. Um, 
and I'd seen all the documentaries and a lot of the documentaries are all, I think a lot of them tend to recruit the same people who've been on documentaries previously. Or, or and, and so what happens with stories like the Peter Stuckliffe murders um, is that these accounts compound themselves over time. So you have people who've decided to make a quick documentary. Uh, maybe they don't have the biggest budget in the world. And because of that, maybe they don't have the most time in the world. Um, so they watch the other stuff. They kind of hire their interviewees based on people who've appeared in the other documentaries. And so those same people and those same sources get re-interviewed and their version of what happened gets repeated and condensed and sort of ever distilled. Um, and what I was able to do, and Matt Sanford, who's the producer at New Pictures, uh, with me, because drama has a bigger budget and there's more sort of space for research, we were able to take a step back from the kind of stuff that had been done on the subject before and go back to the kind of primary sources of local newspapers from the time, try and find people to talk to who were really there, you know, approach people who were in the police or worked as sex workers at the time and go, and, and, and generate new stuff that so, wasn't in the Michael's book. So, so what kind of, who did you talk to and in what ways did that inform your writing and inform the drama? We spoke to, um, so there were 13 murder victims. We spoke to their, some of their children. Um, we tried to speak to um, survivors. So Marcella Claxton, we tried for over a year to get in touch with her. In the end, Matt Willow, who's our executive producer, uh, got to speak to her. Um, so the families, I suppose, is one is, is one way to kind of describe that group. And then um, we spoke to people who worked as sex workers um, or prostitutes um, uh, at the time in Yorkshire, so uh, Leeds and Bradford, to get a real range of opinions on what that was like and what that meant for those women. And, um, and, in, what, and in what ways, just to sort of dig into that point, in what ways did that inform your writing? Did you go into the writing thinking well hang on i'm going to write a, a sex worker and it's going to be that way but actually having spoken to them it brought you to another place where the character did different things on screen be it a sex worker or whatever it else it was well in the in the case of the the sex workers they were um you know like any walk of life i suppose any group there were different personalities and people doing it for very different reasons so you, you emily jackson who was Peter Sutcliffe's second murder victim, had only turned um, uh, to, to sex work uh, shortly before she was murdered. So I had this huge life where she never even considered it and um, and did it, as they all do, out of desperation. Um, there were those who were more... I'd been doing it a long time. There were those who were more frightened of the, the men who were controlling them than they were of the men who were paying to sleep with them. Um and, if, and all of these kind of were aggregated into sort of different different thoughts. And I felt more confident. I learned and I researched and 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 felt confident making big, clean choices about the different women who were in Yorkshire at the time that Peter Sutcliffe was, um, um, and lost nervousness because you're terrified of getting it wrong or being disrespectful or, or leaning to one way into what is quite a difficult debate about um, uh, um, a way of earning money. And. This is, I think, the incredible conjuring act that I think you uh, succeed 
in here? Because I guess whatever you do, it's got to work first and foremost as a work of drama, doesn't it? And um, you've got sort of seven, 46 minutes here. But here you're talking about the people's lives and in Emily Jackson or Catherine Kelly's character's life, you know, that life is difficult. You're talking about their deaths. And if, as you are in The Long Shadow, you know, you are focusing really clearly on that, it would be very easy for it to become, you know, very incredibly sad, which it is, but uh, mawkish or for the tone to be wrong, but it actually has to watch and be compelling and absorbing to a viewer at the same time. So it's like you're walking a tightrope and you manage to do it. I don't know how you do it. Just, just tell us a bit about how you were able to do it. It's very important to remember that you're making drama on a mainstream TV channel that involves a police story as well. So I, we felt, and I wasn't worried about this, and I didn't find it disrespectful I was I was very aware that we had to make the story, the ongoing narrative, compelling across all seven episodes, in order to kind of kind of house the story of of, of the victims and get to those scenes that um, helped us colour in who those women were. Um, if if that was all we had done, I think that people may have been more, you know, well they would have been very respectful of the drama, but they may not have watched. And I think in order to kind of get their, the, the, um, the story of who they were out, we need that spine of a police story to show just how intense it was and just, just how desperate the police were to catch Sutcliffe. Um, and I think what made it easier was actually we were able to identify some of the police who worked on the inquiry, who in a way were victims themselves, not of Sutcliffe, but of the sort of symptoms of the investigation. So um, there were women that worked such amount, such overtime on the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry that it really had detrimental effect on their marriages. Or with some of the men who whose diets were bad, who smoke, uh, smoked and drank far too much, their health was really ruined by the pressure and the stress and, and the addictions of trying to stay, stay awake and up for for, for, for catching uh, Sutcliffe. Um, so, of course, these aren't as bad as the kind of um, uh, the murders or the attacks. They're definitely, um, they were interesting areas. The symptoms of this really rippled out across the police uh, as well as the community. It's just a, such a big set of characters, well over 100, I think, as well. You know, you're dealing with a series uh, that lasts for five years in at the heart of it, but by the end of it, it's 30 years really isn't it um how how did you work out the structure how were you able to to put something together over seven episodes with all the beats that you need with all the carrots that you need for you to have enough time with the characters that you you're rooting for them or you feel something towards them well one of the earliest thoughts was wouldn't it be great to pitch something to itv that had more episodes than your than your average um, true crime drama, which tend to be about three or four episodes, because that, that affords you the chance to do the scenes where that you'd otherwise get cut out. You know who, who these women were, what their what their lives were going to be had it not been for these terrible events, and we could really invest in that uh, in those characters over a longer period of time. Um, uh, and in terms of structuring it, then that's just that's just the hard work of getting you know really planning out the episodes. I wanted to have Sutcliffe caught around the um, 
end of the penultimate episode or maybe the beginning of the final episode we ended up at the very start of episode seven uh, in the final drafts of the script um because i wanted to allow space for the for what happened next so as sutcliffe's um involvement in 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 this ends i was not interested in following him to trial i was interested in staying in yorkshire and seeing what happened to the people whose uh, lives have been affected by it and both in the police and in terms of the victims and their families uh, and having a real insight into just how long those effects uh, last and, and and the truth is they're permanent for, for those families um, so yeah I mean the, the, the real sort of main part of the, the, the drama starts in October 75 and ends uh, with Sutcliffe's arrest but yeah one extra hour to show that that can never be the end of the story for people like that. And some of the scenes are extraordinary. Uh, you know, right at the beginning of the, the the series, you've got a couple of incredible scenes with Catherine Kelly playing Emily Jackson, who we've talked about. Um, and there are other ones later on that I'm not going to talk about because I don't, just for spoilers, in case people haven't seen the series all the way through, but I do want to talk about one scene, which I, I messaged you straight about afterwards, was um, the call handler mm-hmm. scene in... Um, episode two which i think is just a masterclass in writing i've i've been looking at it a couple of times actually and uh it's uh only three minutes 13 seconds long you've got only 13 shot changes and one of those shots is 54 seconds you know of a of a woman ruth madeley the actress with a phone on her ear 54 seconds of that which is i think pretty unheard of in prime time television and then you've got a couple of quick yeah. shot changes and another 45 second another long long shot there as well he's hit you on the head he's hit you on the head with a hammer it feels like water on your head okay and is it bleeding now marcella yeah okay we're going to get an ambulance and police officers to you now okay shouldn't be more than a couple of minutes no, 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 stay, stay sitting for me, darling. Stay sitting. And keep your knickers on the blood. Scrunch them up and hold them on the bit where it's bleeding, okay? Was it somebody you know or, you know, stranger? No, 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 he's, he's, he's not coming back. No, if, if he's left you alone, he won't be coming back. Ma- Marcella? Marcella, can you hear me? Yeah, nice, clear words for me. Yeah, that's it. That's it. He is coming back. He's he's driving back towards the phone box, same white car. And is he seeing you? Okay, I need you to stay down. I need you to stay sitting for me. No, stay sitting, stay, stay. Just tell us about that scene, because... Other people have mentioned it as well. It's it's incredible, I think. And obviously something dreadful is happening, but you're telling a story which is in a palatable way about something that's truly awful that's happening in a really inventive um, way. Well, thank you. Um, well, the first um, thing to say that is as we're looking to tell this story, and obviously um, Peter Sutcliffe killed a lot of women, and I didn't want to have a say, I didn't want to have the similar rhythm of there being another murder followed by another murder followed by another attack because i think even if we deal with this story in a very respectful way that rhythm 
will in the end become disrespectful just by the sort of horrific conveyor belt feeling of you know the next crime to kind of cross our paths as viewers so um i was always looking at ways to disrupt that rhythm um and marcellus um uh attack was sort of next to, to sort of have a look at in terms of working out how to dramatize and um she she was attacked on in Roundhay Park um, and had been hit on the head by Sutcliffe with a hammer. And I think he thought he'd killed her and driven off and maybe had looked round later on and noticed she was no longer lying on Roundhay Park. Um, she'd actually sort of managed to get her knickers scrunched up in her hand and, 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 and put on top of her head to kind of stem the blood and crawled. What I worked out by going there myself was half a mile probably from the scene of the attack to a phone box and managed from there to phone 999. And um, at the same time, Sutcliffe, who was in a white car, had started to drive around uh, the southern corner of Rando Park in Leeds to uh, to look for her. Um, and during the call, she'd noticed that he was looking for her. And I got that from research and I got that from, from various sources. And so um, I thought, well, I don't want to at any point in this drama show Sutcliffe killing anyone. So using that phone call, perhaps we can actually see the effects of that crime on someone who worked in the police who we may never see again. And the 999 caller felt like a fun idea because um, that way you could experience it um, from the outside without sort of hearing Marcella's voice, without seeing the crime, without being disrespectful to what was going on, receiving the information as, as a member of the police might have done and dealing with it. And it was very important to me to only have one side of the phone call so that we were left to fill in um, what was going on uh, to Marcella and, and, and what was happening and the drama of that without having to hear her voice or to hear her suffering. Um, so that was the idea. I was always trying to push for never hearing the other side of the call, which made for the actress, it was quite a challenge, I think, to sort of learn um, the one-sided phone call and all the rhythms they come with normal speech it's hard to achieve that in performance i think unless you've got someone to bounce off so um but that was the creative challenge and that's the only scene that ruth madeley does in the whole series um and it ends in a way that i'm really proud of which is that she hangs up after after helping marcella through this um uh, traumatic moment um and then the phone rings again and she's got the next call to do and that's the life of police as they're having to deal with these things. And really, we're just dipping into the Ruth Bader characters uh, just at that moment that affects our story. But we see in that character that you have a whole life like this in the in the police force. And the traumas are incremental and they'll build for her off camera for the rest of her career. So she'll carry that that trauma with her, too, just as Marcella does. And, and you mentioned um, Ruth Madeley there. Uh, the 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 cast is in, incredible and and what was it like well it starts off with you know one set of people with uh with toby jones and Catherine kelly and then 
my God, David Morrissey as George Oldfield and Jill Halfpenny towards the end. It's just incredible cast and amazing acting. What was that like to to get this cast list together and put it together as executive producer? And then to see your words spoken by these uh, um, just incredible players. Well, absolute um, privilege and, and, and joy to get a cast like that together. I mean, Victor, who's our casting director, is fantastic and has worked with Lewis Arnold, our director, before. And, and Lewis is is a is a massive talent but he's definitely a, an actor's director there's all the actors you know in the uk are keen to work with lewis it seems and you know we were able to bring in a lot of people that we both worked with separately before and um but it always requires a kind of first piece of casting to set the agenda for the rest of the show and this is a big ensemble cast so no one's beyond like three or four of the parts the remaining 110 are all not in it for the whole stretch of the, the shoot um so they're short shoots they're, they're odd days here and there and um we were lucky enough to get danny mays to play sydney jackson as our first piece of casting and danny is so talented and such an actor's actor that when that when other actors noticed that he was in it, then a few others joined. Kate Kelly, who you've mentioned, I was, uh, who's a brilliant actress. Um, I'd worked with on Criminal. And so she came to play Emily. And suddenly, Victor had a situation where you have Danny and Kate in for just essentially one episode, one and a half episodes. And so other actors hear about that and think, okay, well, if they're doing that, I might do that too. And um, it started to build from there. And then we got Toby and David um, as um, uh, and Lee Ingleby. And, and the more we went on, the easier that became. Actually, the harder, the harder stuff is always at the start when you're just getting your first actors on board. Um, but yeah, we've been so lucky. And, and I need to ask you as well about uh, Mark Stobart playing Sutcliffe, who we see just for hardly any time at all. But how much thought went into getting him right not just getting mark stobart to play him but also the look and the feel and the everydayness of sutcliffe but yet the menace that's still there within this everydayness which is extraordinary that he brings to it and that's there in the writing as well just talk us through showing sutcliffe on screen well sutcliffe either sutcliffe uh, is hardly in the long shadow i'm he's in sort of a handful of scenes around the time he's caught and he's really only in those scenes because even when they finally caught him the west yorkshire police weren't the ones who apprehended him at the beginning it was the south yorkshire police in sheffield and they happened upon him and they then tried to get the west yorkshire police to kind of take their thoughts that he was uh, possibly um uh, the man they were looking for seriously and even then they they nearly let him go and he was his full plan was to go back to where they picked him up and, and just and sort of disappear with the weapons that he'd concealed at the scene of his arrest um so it was really vital to show how the police nearly dropped the ball but i wanted also to show that he had been visited in real life nine times prior to his arrest and nine times he had been um alibied by his wife or ruled out for technical reasons that that he did he never quite stacked up they, there were a lot of near misses um but 
so you see him being visited by the cops at one point. Uh, they're suspicious of him. They file a report. A young detective called Andrew Lapchu um, submits a report to Dick Holland, who's one of the senior detectives, and it's rejected because um, uh, Peter Sutcliffe didn't have a Geordie accent, which is what uh, uh, the, the senior investigators thought uh, the man they were looking for had. Uh, so we needed to show the police missing him at least once. I didn't want to do nine times, but I did want to show that, that you know, it was easy to kind of, um, um, I, I wanted to show them failing to notice that that was him. Um, and then you're dealing in the world of irony because actually the audience knows full well that the, that the man they're looking for is called Peter Sutcliffe. And so, um, so that was important, I think. In terms of Mark's performance and his look, I mean, he looked... There's parts of his appearance that can be sort of adapted with, with hair and makeup to make him look um, almost chillingly like Peter Sutcliffe. I thought they did a great job. Um, but the real talent he has is in the everydayness because um, Sutcliffe did absolutely horrific things, as we all know. But he only did that for a vast minority of his life. For the rest of the time, he was a lorry driver with a normal voice in a normal workplace who acted completely normally. And it's that sort of averageness that Mark captures. And because of that, it's it's sort of chilling to see because he's not a monster at all. He's just like the man next door. And I think that's the most frightening thing of all. The investigation takes has fam- famously took lots of wrong turns, particularly when it was knocked off the rails by the Wearside Jack Um tapes but it would have been very easy wouldn't it to say look here are a load of sort of 1970s middle-aged men getting it wrong who are you know misogynistic and making mistakes but it it pushes back against that a bit doesn't it you know you've got some empathy for the people who must have been the most under pressure police officers on the planet at that time yeah i mean the i don't always push back on the fact they're misogynists because they definitely were although the misogyny was um it's not something we we um, we drop it in really incidentally because it's not as malicious as it might sound. Um, it wasn't then, although it was inappropriate then, undoubtedly. So rather than make a big dramatic play to criticise them on for misogyny, using a twenty first century perspective, they wanted to drop it in and show it for its inappropriateness in an incidental way, which in a way kind of makes it more shocking, I think, as well. So they would use the language um, uh, and it's sort of shocking how casual it is. You know, that's really coming from a place of wanting to tell the story about those men who are in that mindset then. And so they would often and have often uh, been shown to, to, to make terrible mistakes in terms of policing, tragically, uh, especially around the um, Wearside Jack and the hoax letters and the hoax tape. Um, but it was really important to me to show that people like George Oldfield, for all the mistakes that he made, was trying to, he was trying his best to catch Peter Sutcliffe. And he was really motivated by that and driven to do that. And and some of the decisions he made uh, were wrong, but were done for logical reasons. So I think most of all, in terms of 
there was a, a woman who was murdered in Preston in 1975 called Joan Harrison, who the police thought was linked to the series of crimes at the time. And she had a blood group uh, that matched the saliva on the letter uh, that uh, came with one of the hoax letters. Um, and the chances of the, um, uh, those two things matching were one in 20, which is an extraordinary coincidence. So if you are George Oldfield and you're thinking, is this the same guy that has killed these other women? The one in 20 odds are really tragically coincidental. So it's no wonder for a time he thought this must be the guy. His problems came when he then wouldn't move off that opinion, no matter how much the evidence was mounting against him. But that initial decision made a lot of sense. And I think it's important to show that as well as it is to show the errors. Yeah, it's an appalling piece of luck, isn't it? It's a really, really bad yeah. bit of bit of luck for him. Um, and we're talking, of course, back then they had sort of 1970s science and, and this was a story of the 1970s. Why did you want to sort of tell it again now? Well, the, the one thing I, I've often said in terms of the long shadow, but also it goes for any period piece of television. If you're going to make something, a history programme, essentially, you've got to be making something about the world today. So you're always looking for those parallels. And, and um, there were so many parallels with life then and life now, um, economically, in terms of racism, um, in terms of misogyny within within the police and in our in our workplaces, um, and what I was looking to to do was to 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 show the world then and and show how similar it is to the world we live in now. Um, but the more I worked on the scripts, the more the parallels kept stacking up. Um, and while well, we were um, talking to Jacqueline Hill's family, um, that's. Peter Sutcliffe's final murder victim. We were getting their trust, and they hadn't uh, ever spoken really to the to anyone from the media before. So we were very proud and trying to be very diligent about how we went about telling Jacqueline's story and, and her mother Doreen um, during a, a, the period of uh, writing Jacqueline's story. Um, Sarah Everard was murdered in London, and they then did um, reclaim the streets protests in Clapham, just as the Leeds University students had done, uh, reclaimed the night protests in Leeds when Jacqueline was murdered. And suddenly I was writing Reclaim the Night protests from 1980 at the same time as on the news there were Reclaim the Night protests going on in London. And suddenly the parallels were sort of overwhelming, really. The montage at the beginning of the series is is chilling, isn't it? The, the vote on Europe, the uh, interest rates, uh, everything that we... Uh, seeing the economic crises is is just um, uh, it is chillingly similar, isn't it? Um, but you just mentioned uh, Jacqueline Hill's family there. Just just tell us about what um, involvement you had with the families uh, and and just how how they welcomed you or how long it took you to build trust and what it was like for you as a writer who's entering this world um, to be able to talk to them and hear directly from them. Well, you want them to know that you're doing this a project and 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 it's it's sort of you have to keep people informed and there's going to be a vast spectrum of people wanting to talk or just be kept abreast of what was happening um uh jacqueline's family so jacqueline's sister vivian um 
uh, and her husband were 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 trusting of us but we took you know it took like three or four chats first on zoom this is all during lockdown and then taking trains up uh to see them um and building that relationship and explaining what we were trying to do and having no program of course to show them and not wanting to kind of um show them the script because at the same time it, it hadn't been written that part of the script but also even if it had you want them to trust you as a person you don't want to be bringing bringing your homework for their approval because they don't they won't necessarily understand the emphasis you want to put on it or how it might be directed or performed and um you want them to look at you in the eye and think actually i have i hear what you you've got to say i hear what you're trying to do and actually that's an approach we approve of and we give you our blessing and it's an ongoing process of maintaining that trust and and building that relationship and sharing things as they as they come up um vivian had said that um jacqueline's favorite song was bridge over troubled water and we talked about that and she asked if i would do what i could to include that in some way in the um in the drama and i said yes we all said yes we were we were keen to do that but at the back of my mind i had an idea about really leaning into that um to go you know to to really celebrate jacqueline through that song and um to show the power of uh, of what happened uh, during her life and also uh, the response to her death that's an incredibly moving scene isn't it the end of, of episode 6 um it's beautiful yeah. the Pe- peggy lee version of it as well it's absolutely beautiful i mean the reviews have been incredible you must be so happy with the reviews but, but a couple of reviewers not while talking about the long shadow but talking more about the the uh, concept of true crime on television ho- have been critical of that idea what, what would you say to people who think that i don't really worry about true crime on tv in theory i think it's all about how you go about um doing it personally so as a single writer i i try and have integrity um i was trying research and i try and have empathy and i think empathy is a achievement of the imagination really and so it's sort of um uh you have to work hard to earn it and you must sort of try and use it as much as you can um if the approach is sensitive and responsible and you're telling a story that goes beyond the crime to say something about how we're living now and that feels like it's um newsworthy or in the public interest or or a worthwhile debate then there's absolutely no um problem for me in doing what you might call true crime because if you don't tackle those subjects then where do you draw the line what is true crime and where does that meet a true story um and is it a war film true crime you know what where, where do you stop and actually it's about how we make these programs not not what we call the genre that they might happen to sit in or be defined as at this current period of time. So I just work as best I can in a way that's as respectful as I can. Um, and, you know, I don't think people have any worries about documentaries or news covering these topics. And arguably that's an entertainment as well. So I think it, we're all in or we're all, we're all out in terms of the, the sort of overall rules here. But um, I think actually we should be judged on our individual work and our approach. And, and you mentioned as 
part of that uh, answer, your research. Uh, just tell us a bit about the further research you did to try to make sure the uh, attention to detail was correct. You know, you already said you found the the phone box which Marcella Claxton went to, uh, uh, Emmerdale Farm. Just tell us about some of those details. That yeah, you I was in. telling you the other day because we we um, I wanted to make sure that everything was really detailed. And sometimes when you're talking about a really sad series of crimes. You need to find moments of levity or other uh, cultural moments of context just to keep things bubbling along and feeling like they exist within the real world. So the underlying references continue to kind of resonate with people quite separately from the crimes. So, for example, Dennis Hoban, um, who's played by Toby Jones, was a massive Emmerdale Farm fan and he didn't like people calling up during Emmerdale Farm. He was a complete workaholic worked 365 days a year, including Christmas Day, and would want people to phone him up during Christmas lunch so that he could get out of the family house and get back to the office. Um, so I wanted to include those kind of details, but I even extended it to going to find out the TV schedules that day, you know, and they talk in episode one about Morecambe and Wise being on the TV, which they were on that actual day, they were often obviously doing Christmas specials, that's well known. But in 1975, they they uh, they were back, having not done one in 1974. And that's what it said in the TV Times in the British Library for that one day in history. Mm. And so I wanted to build an excitement around that, the fact that Morecambe and Wise were back and, and, and everyone in our show had been waiting for two years for that to come back on. So these things are what get people who work on these these cases and investigations through life you know everyone needs a break and i wanted to celebrate those details and my research and, and the details that i included um were mirrored with our amazing production designer anna higginson and everyone took it at that went for it on a granular level just to bring the whole world visually and in terms of references to life and you're working with new pitches who are incredible, aren't they? With with who you've mentioned already, Willow Grills and, and Matt Sanford, who brought us both Dares and White House Farm, which are just breathtaking true crime dramas as well. What did they bring? You know, how did they make sure that everything was right for you to make sure that this was right? Oh, they're fantastic, and I I, I love working with them and. Um, Matt had begun as a script editor on a previous thing and was wanting to rise up to be a producer. And that was a really exciting thing um, for us to do together. Um, and so we began work in 2019 on The Long Shadow. And Willow is a, a wonderful executive producer and creative leader, really. And I can felt complete trust from her and a strength of leadership in terms of keeping me like keeping me focused, backing me with my kind of creative judgments. The same would apply. Lewis Arnold would say the same about Willow. She's a sort of centre of gravity for the whole thing. So we can all go around her and be kind of um, creative and she can she can hold the kind of creative centre ground for us. And um, it's been a joy working with those guys. Yeah, they do some of the best stuff and they have all of that duty of care that we talked about Um they have a wonderful approach and have a rigour and they have a strength to the story we're telling and a respect for the people whose lives are being dramatised. And and for you as well, I mean, this has taken four years from when you, you picked it up to it coming out, which is 
It's probably about ten percent of your life, more or less. What, what impact? It's the Olympics, Rob. It's yes. the Olympics. What's it? What impact does it have on it. you? What impact does it have on you, you on your life, though? You know, you've got four years of Sutcliffe and 1975 to 1981. Yeah, we've almost got the same amount of time as the investigation, really, which is which is shocking if you think about it. Um, uh, as we've talked about before, I wasn't just doing. The long shadow during that time so that's kept uh kept it feeling fresh and then right in the middle of that we had covid which delayed us i think probably six to nine months but yeah it's a big old um stretch of time but i've been right i wrote the whole thing so i wrote all seven episodes which is i suppose unusual um to write everything um lewis and sasha um the editor also did the whole all seven episodes so it's like a big long project, but it never felt like it was taking a long time or faltering or anything. We just had to be that thorough for that long period of time to build the relationships and to get it done and to get it shot. And then it takes, you know, nine months to cut it all and put it through post-production. So it all quickly stacks up into sort of a three or three or four year time frame. It's a pleasure to work on it, though. It's a pleasure to be given that opportunity to, to do it. And, and it was, I'm very interested in it as a story, but also in terms of its cultural sort of resonance. And so, and there's so much to explore and so many uh, important themes within it that it felt never, never did it feel like it was taking a long time. It was just the correct amount of time to get it right. Well, it is beautifully produced, beautifully directed by Lewis, beautifully acted by everyone and beautifully written by you. So you must be so proud. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Remember, you can see clips with George Kay, scenes from the show and read more. But you'll need to subscribe to the show's Substack feed for that. Type in robertsmurphy.substack.com.